Thanks, Mark, for those readings. Please, uh, please keep uh, Romans 6 open. We're going to look at that together. Um, and if you've... I've been away for a couple of weeks, so if you've joined us in the last couple of weeks, hi. Uh, my name's David, I'm the Senior Minister here, and uh, it would be lovely to meet you uh, later on. Uh, let me commit our time um, in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for the word that you've given to us in the Scriptures. Father, we, your servants, would listen. So please uh, drive away um, concerns or, or worries or other things for this time that we might hear you speak, reflect upon what you have revealed to us that we might live it out in our lives. Help us to celebrate the wonderful truth of the Gospel and to live lives worthy of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've uh, enjoyed the wonderful message that we've had over the last couple of weeks in Romans 5. It's just such wonderful news to hear of the kindness and the love of God that in the midst of our rebellion when we were doing nothing for ourselves except for earning God's anger by our sin, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. And that he, if He made peace with us while we were His enemies... How much more can we be sure and confident that we will be saved now that we're actually at peace with Him through Jesus? If He loved us while we're sinners, how much more can we be sure that He loves us now that Jesus has taken all of that sin away? And what a future that that truth promises, that no longer do we line up behind Adam, ruled by sin, rebels facing the wrath of God, doomed to death and judgment. But we line up behind Jesus. We stand in God's grace. We've been given the gift of righteousness and the sure hope of eternal life that comes from that. And we did nothing to deserve it. God, in His kindness, gave us this future all through Jesus. He's done it all. That is the gospel. That is good news with a capital G. God's grace is amazing. But how does grace work now? I mean, apart from saving us, how does God's kindness impact the here and now of those that have benefited from His grace? What's it mean? What do we do now that we have our get-out-of-jail-free card? Now that we have got spiritual diplomatic immunity. Well, that's what the next three talks are about. Because in chapter 6 and 7 of Romans, Paul deals with some of the objections or the queries that might arise in a person's mind as they think about what it means to be saved by grace. What are the implications of it? And today we're going to deal with the first of these. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the psychological condition called Munchausen syndrome. Now, Munchausen syndrome is a really interesting thing. It's, it's a condition that's named after an 18th century German baron called Karl Friedrich von Munchausen. Now, he was an aristic, uh, aristocratic soldier and he fought in the wars against the, the Turks and he, he would come back home from battles and he would tell outrageous tales about his adventures that just stretched credibility. Like one of the ones he told was him riding a cannonball. Uh, another one was pulling himself out of a swamp by his own hair. 
Another one was, of course, that he travelled to the moon. This was Baron Munchausen. Now, the condition that I'm talking about, Munchausen's syndrome, it's, it's when a person exaggerates or even creates symptoms or illnesses in themselves and sometimes by proxy in their children in order to gain attention, in order to gain sympathy, in order to receive comfort from other people, often in the hope that medical professionals might actually investigate them and and prescribe treatments for them. So people with Munchausen syndrome tend to be highly knowledgeable about the practice of medicine, so they're able to produce the symptoms that result in multiple unnecessary operations. Because it's a serious thing. For people with Munchausen's, the role of patient is a familiar role for them. It is a comforting one and it seems to feel fill a deep psychological need. Now, um, it's kind of, you think about it, it's an extreme form of what children sometimes do, deliberately getting themselves into trouble so that they can gain attention from a worried cons- or concerned parent that they are feeling like they're not getting enough attention from. Now, you might be going, this is random, why are you telling us about Munchausen syndrome? Well, a question that we might ask about grace is this. Will God's grace bring about a similar kind of behaviour in the believer? In other words, deliberately making ourselves sick in the area of sin so that we can enjoy more of God's grace. Now, it's a strange question. But that's the type of issue behind the objection that's in verse 1 of chapter 6. See, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace, God's gift to us, might increase? So, he's kind of saying, okay, Paul, you told us in chapter 5, verse 20, that where sin increased, God's grace increased even more. And God's grace is a good thing, isn't it? Well, if that's true, then wouldn't staying in sin make God show us even more kindness? Couldn't you just deliberately keep on being a sinner in order to gain more of God's affection? See, it's actually not all that dissimilar to Munchausen's, is it? Now, on the one hand, it's it's a strange question, I think, to imagine someone actually asking. I doubt that that's really popped into most people's heads. But the thing is, I don't actually think that Paul is anticipating a person who has a spiritual equivalent of Munchausen syndrome, but I do think he's dealing with two real-world objections that people have just to the concept of being saved by grace. They sort of go, that doesn't make sense because then wouldn't this work, right? So on the one hand, you might get the grace sceptic, right? So who might be the defender of conventional works religion. How on earth can grace a free pardon, lead a person to greater godliness, greater holiness than the law, than concrete instruction about what you should do and shouldn't do. Law makes it clear that you've got to be holy, but grace, in effect, means that sin ends up being to a person's advantage. The more I sin, the more grace I get. That's absurd, the whole thing is rubbish, right? So that might be the grace sceptic's objection. But on the other hand, there's the opposite. There's the grace cynic. The complacent sinner who's not that bothered by their sin and uses God's grace to make themselves feel okay about their behaviour. Do you know, W.H. Auden, the, um, the British poet, once said, 
I like committing crimes, God likes forgiving them, really, the world is admirably arranged. So, having described God's grace to us in Jesus, Paul then asks this question to deal with precisely these kinds of objections. Paul wants to show that the gospel of grace, properly understood, actually leads to more righteous and godly living. Because the gospel of grace actually gives you a radically new life to live. Look at verses 1 to 4, or 1 to 5. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now, I might ask if someone could just close the glass doors over there, um, that would be helpful. Um, So, shall we remain in sin, is the question. Thanks, Richard. Um, And the answer is, absolutely not. And, And this is one of those phrases that they teach you very early on when you're learning Greek. This is the, in no possible way is this ever, this is a very, very strong phrase, absolutely not. The nature of salvation, as we saw last week in chapter 5, is that we have changed from being Adam people to being Jesus people. We're fundamentally different now. Paul reminds them that that was what their baptism was all about. Now, this is actually quite timely, as you will have noticed from paying attention in the notices, that we're having a number of baptisms at church next week, which is really exciting. So, but let's have a think about what Paul says about baptism here. Now, when Paul is speaking of baptism here, he's referring not to water baptism itself, but to the reality that is going on behind baptism. So, the spiritual reality that their physical baptism is an illustration of their union with Jesus Christ. So, when Jesus died on the cross, He took our sin as His own. He faced the punishment that we deserved. And as Paul's already explained, if we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, then we're saying, you take it for me, right? We, we, are, we receive the benefits of His atoning death and His risen life. So, when you become a Christian, you're saying, Jesus stands for me. I want Him to be my representative. And I will therefore stand with Him. Becoming a Christian symbolised in the initiatory rite of baptism, unites you to Christ. You're accounted with Him. And that means when He died to sin, so did you. And when He rose to a new life, so did you. As the old translation at the end of verse 4 puts it, we are to walk in newness of life. Great descriptions of it. You walk, the pattern of your life is now to be the new one, the Jesus one. So when a person gets baptized with water, it's more than uh, you might think water washing, right? So, so it's, it, it's a ritual of cleansing. It's more than that. It actually symbolizes the fact that our lives are bound up with Jesus' life. 
And this is seen especially clearly in full immersion baptism. Um, When someone descends under the water, it's symbolic of them dying. Dying with Christ and being buried with Him, just like the water is covering over you. And when they rise up afterwards, it points to Christ's resurrection and their rising with Him. So it is a cleansing thing, but it is also a death and resurrection thing. An old life and new life thing. And so Paul asks, we died to sin. So how on earth can we live at it any longer? We're buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might live a new life. You know, there's a word that doesn't get used much now, um, probably because it sounded like Christian jargon or maybe because it wasn't politically correct or whatever, but it is a powerful word that we should reclaim and reuse and describe it of ourselves and the word is conversion. Conversion. Because conversion is what takes place when a person responds properly to the gospel of grace. You get converted. You know what converting is. Um, here's a few examples I've got, I've got on the screen here. There's a converted barn into a kitchen and dining room, right? The next one is a converted bus into a house that you might live in. And then there's a, a converted garage into a home theatre, which our next door neighbour also did. Um, now, it started out, notice, as one thing, it's now something completely different. Same outside shell, but very different on the inside. It's no longer a barn, it's no longer a bus, it's no longer a garage. Paul says when you become a Christian, you are a refitted, converted human being. On the outside, you might still resemble an Adam-type human a slave to sin, destined for judgment. But the reality is, thankfully, that that old you is dead. It got cleaned out at the cross. By God's grace, He has made you into a Christ-type human. United to Him by faith, with the promise of eternal life, and vitally, for our question, no longer a slave to sin no longer a slave to sin. You've been converted. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You see, the mistake that both the grace sceptic and the grace cynic make is that they fundamentally misunderstand what is really going on when it comes to salvation. If we go back to the idea of God's grace to us in Christ being like a get-out-of-jail-free card, both the sceptic and the cynic see it this way. God's grace is a criminal being given a card that allows them to go ahead and commit crime without facing any consequences. It's the same person outside the prison as the one who went into it. They're still a criminal, it's just now they've got immunity. Now, the problem for both is what they understand the jail to be. And so they mistake the nature of the person that's actually been set free. 
They think that the jail that grace frees us from is merely the consequences of sin. The judgment bit. And so the person on the outside of the bars is still a sinner, but now a sinner free to sin with impunity. Now to the self-righteous, that's just ridiculous. It's offensive. And to the libertine, well, it's very convenient. But the reality that Paul is speaking about is much, much greater than that picture. The jail that God's grace frees us from is not merely the consequences of sin, it's sin itself. So the person on the outside of the bars is not a sinner let loose, but a person who has been declared righteous. A person who is united with Christ and so in, in him has actually died to their sin and been declared righteous by God. The sinner let loose would continue in their sin because they would still be its slave. But the person who has died to sin will not continue in it. But like their Lord Jesus, live for God. You see, God's grace converts people. Verses 8 to 11, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, so the person who has received God's grace now views themselves and their lives as God does. They look at their purpose differently now to the way they used to before they were converted. They look at life as a Jesus person looks at life. See that there? Paul says, count yourselves. It's the language of taking an account, of adding up the sums in your head and coming to a conclusion about what the bottom line is. Count yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. So when you assess who you are and what you're on about in your life, reflecting on the grace shown to you in Jesus Christ, it causes you to look at your sin now and go, I'm dead to that. No, I'm dead to it. That's not me. Far from viewing grace as an expense account where you run up the, the bills to the max, right? Maxing out your credit card. We're to view it as a wonderful release to actually live our lives for God now. Now, next week, we're going to be looking more at what it means to live for God. But before Paul gets to that, from verse 15 onwards... He spends a bit more time considering what it means to be a converted person, all right? To count yourselves dead to sin, to what used to rule you. So have a look at verses 12 to 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't let it. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law, 
but under grace. Right? Now, the language in, you'll have noticed as that, I was reading that to you and, and as Margaret read it earlier, is the language of realms, kingdoms. Now, so don't let sin rule over you. Do not obey its desires. Do not offer your bodies as instruments of service to sin. Right, literally, it says, as weapons of unrighteousness. Weapons of unrighteousness. It's kind of like pledging to sin, if you're imagining a, a sort of a ruler kingly kind of thing, right? It's like pledging your sword, right? But you're pledging it to sin, saying, I will fight for you with who I am and what I have. You go, no, no, we don't do that. Sin shall not be your master. We count ourselves dead to sin by not letting sinful desires rule us, by not letting them call the shots. One of the key words in verse 12 there is let. Do not let sin reign. Now, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that you are in reality free to not let sin reign. That's something within your capacity. Being set free from sin is not a fiction. Yes, this side of, of heaven, we're still vulnerable to sin and that's something we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, but we're no longer slaves to it and that is the critical thing. The unconverted sinner is ruled by sin. They're, they're under, they don't have authority over it. It has authority over them. Sure, they can resist individual sinful desires at points, and, and part of that is God's goodness to the world, actually, in restraining human sin. Um, but ultimately, sin is king. When it comes to God, that person's heart is just rebellious and they will obey sin. But by the grace of God, He's converted your heart and mine. He's given us hearts that desire to please Him and wonderfully are able to please Him. And every day we're faced with choices to obey sinful desires or godly ones. But sin doesn't actually rule you. And so the thing you go from that is, well, then don't let it rule you. It doesn't rule you. Don't let it rule you. It's the first that makes the second possible. Look at verse 14 there. Sin shall no longer be your master. You are not under law, but under grace. Now, shall no longer, in verse 14, is not a command. In other words, it doesn't mean must not, i.e. don't let it be your master. It's not a command, it's promise. It's not an imperative, it's an indicative. It's stating a reality. Literally, sin will not rule over you. It will not be your master now. It will not be your master ever again. And it shall not be your master because you're not under law. Because remember, Paul's already pointed out earlier in Romans that the law actually incites and intensifies sin in us. It's like a red rag to a bull, as that old phrase goes. It fires up sin. But we are under grace. And grace frees us from the power of sin. Because you are in Christ, 
Sin actually cannot be your master. Do do you realise how important a truth this is? And how much it intersects with your day-to-day life now that you're a believer? See, without the promise that sin cannot be your master, all those commands to not let it be your master would be futile commands, wouldn't they? If you and I weren't genuinely free of the mastery of sin, then all of these commands to be dead to sin, to not obey its evil desires, to offer your bodies as instruments of righteousness, all of those commands would be like telling a person who is drowning in the middle of the ocean, go swim for the shore. Go on get going, stop coughing and spluttering and swim, only a few thousand kilometres to go. If you're still in your sin, you're powerless. But the promise is there, sin shall not be your master. And that is a great promise to take into life, isn't it? You know, you might have picked up in our first reading, right near the beginning of the Bible, we read that when Abel's sacrifice was received with favour and that Cain's was not, that Cain became angry and downcast. Um, given what he does following that, that's probably an understatement. Of course, he would soon turn that anger into murder. But before he did, did you pick up what God said to him? The Lord spoke to him and said, sin, it's quite a, a, a vivid picture actually, if you try and conceive of it in your head. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So, Paul is saying here that because of God's grace, when sin is crouching at our door, desiring to have us, we face it knowing that in the power of God, we can master it. You can master it. So, what does this gracious freedom mean then in practice? Well, first of all, it means don't resign yourself to failure when it comes to sin. Hear that? Don't don't resign yourself to failure. It's actually a lie of the devil that says this is all too hard. No, it's not too hard. You really can do what God wants of you. His Spirit is in you. There is no temptation that you can face that God is not powerful enough and has empowered you to overcome. Sure, you will not be perfect at overcoming all sin in this life. You will drop the ball. You will get it wrong. But its power over you, and this is what we've got here, has been broken. See, it's all too easy to justify and excuse sin, especially when it's deeply ingrained in aspects of our character. But difficult does not mean impossible, and you must not tell yourself that. Don't run up the white flag and surrender to sin. You are not a slave to your ungodly feelings, so don't let them be master over you. Now, I'm not sure what things you particularly struggle with. I would expect that a lot of things are popping into your mind. But let me illustrate with a few examples of this, right? So don't offer your tongue 
as an instrument of wickedness. When you're in a bad mood, you don't have to use your tongue as an instrument of wickedness just because you're in a bad mood, do you? So don't. Or or because you're angry with someone or simply because you struggle for the discipline to keep it in check, self-control is a gift of God's Spirit. Use it. Don't give in. Master your tongue. And use it for righteousness. Because you can. Same thing with sex and relationships and stuff. You're finding yourself drawn to a relationship that goes against God's Word. Master your feelings and actions. You don't have to enter it. Don't let them master you. There is a wicked lie out there that says you can't help the way you feel. Rubbish. This is rubbish. Because God says you can. So that idea is wrong. You don't have to enter an inappropriate relationship just because you're attracted to the person or because you're lonely. You don't have to sleep with the person that you're dating with because you really, really want to. You don't have to live a homosexual lifestyle because you find yourself attracted to people of the same sex. You are not a slave to your lusts. And so don't enslave yourself to porn as if you were. The same goes with substance abuse and selfishness and greed and envy and pride and laziness, whatever it is that you struggle with at the moment. Now, I don't don't want to be heard saying physical addictions can be very powerful things and overcoming them can be hard work but it is a work that we can and should put in. I know that I will not be perfect in this life, but I also know that sometimes I can give in far too easily and then console myself with the fact that God is loving and forgiving. You ever do that? Well, yes, He is forgiving, but that's not what grace is for. Grace shouldn't make me sit back and be complacent, should it? It's it's blessed assurance of God's love for me should steal me for the fight against sinful desires, knowing that I've been set free. It should empower me. It's those who overcome who will receive the crown of life and that's what God converted me to do. But being under grace is even better than just being able to overcome sin. See, there is an active command there as well. It's not just that sin is not our master, it is that we are to offer ourselves the parts and the whole to God. So remember that illustration before of offering, here's my sword, sin. No, no, no. Here we are saying, here's my sword, here is myself, God. I'm offering them to you that you might use me as an instrument of righteousness. That's what we do live for. But what does that mean? Is that just some sort of ethical purity? Uh, In other words, so the end result of this is that I offer myself to God as a righteous acting person. So I kind of going as if to say, God, I stand before you, a redeemed sinner by your power. I am your wonderful handiwork. Thanks. No, it's more than that. We're offering ourselves and all that is part of us to be used. To be used by Him as an instrument of righteousness. It's the polar opposite of let us sin so that grace might increase, isn't it? 
It is, let us do righteousness, that God's grace might be made known, that others could see it and know what God does and know him. Let us offer him our new selves, made new by his grace, that he might use us for his glory, that he might use us to bear witness in word and deed to the amazing work of Jesus, in whom we are found, in whom we live, and whose life we've been baptised into, that we might live it. There is a world full of unredeemed people out there, and God is sending out us, as his people, into that world that we might bear witness in word and deed to Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not the end product ourselves. God wants a world that knows Jesus. We are, to borrow from Philippians, to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel that we've received. Now that we've been set free from the power of sin, we want to commit ourselves to the cause of the gospel, right? To say to God, as Isaiah did, here am I, send me. That's what we are to do. So here's something practical, okay? There's lots of, therefore, go do's, go do's, go do's. All right, here's something practical uh, that I want to encourage all of us to do. I want you to go home and sometime in the next day or two, don't leave it too long, I want you to get out a journal or maybe open up a file on your computer, maybe take some notes on your phone and I want you to compile two lists, right? On one list, I want you to note down those areas of life, even specific areas of sin that you find it all too easy to concede mastery to, that you're kind of living as if they were masters because you always seem to to give in to them, right? Those aspects of yourself that you let be used as instruments of wickedness. Um, I suspect that it probably will not take too much reflection for us to think of a bunch, all right? Um, That's actually one of the things that the Holy Spirit does wonderfully, convicts us so that we might change, right? Um, And then what I want you to do after you've compiled that list is right underneath it, the truth about them. And that is this, I am not their slave. These are not my master. Look at the list again. On the second list, I want you to jot down, perhaps even corresponding to each of the things on the first list, their conversion counterparts. You get this, right? Um, This will probably take more thought and more reflection. But what might be the righteous alternative to these areas of stumbling that I might be able to embrace? Okay, what what, what behaviour or attitude should I pursue instead um, of those things? What, What good habit should I strive to develop even in those same areas so that what used to be a problem might now be used for God as an instrument of His righteousness? And look at that list and write underneath it the truth about that. I am under grace. I now walk in newness of life that Jesus has given me. And look at the list again. And once you've done both of those lists, pray through them, both. 
Ask for God's power to overcome the first and to pursue the second. And you can pray that with confidence. And then this week, the final bit, is what I'm saying do it the next day or two, at your growth group or with a trusted Christian friend, share something from both of those lists that you might actually walk this together because we are in this together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But the good news of the gospel is that you can master it. You're dead to all of that stuff. And so offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. Engage in your battle with sin boldly and confidently, knowing that you've got the power of God as you do. Make real in your daily experiences the freedom from sin's lordship that is yours in Christ. So let God's grace spur you on to godliness in a way that legalism never could. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful truth of the gospel. Lord, we we know we all struggle with sin but help us to remember this wonderful truth that we are no longer enslaved to it. Help us to know that with your power, because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us, we can overcome it just as we are 100% sure that we will be forever free of it in glory. Help us to live on that trajectory and use us that we might bear witness to Christ in word and deed and that others may come to know the same freedom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.